Let's look at God's Word in Ephesians chapter 2. You think about the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the saints at Ephesus. That's where he begins his letter, the saints at Ephesus. Not super-Christians, but Christians, men and women saved by grace, but men and women who are being taught in this very epistle what they have been saved from. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in the first verse, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Oh, great to find those words. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Pray with me. Thank you for your word, Lord God. How rich is this. Father, help us to hear it well. Help us to take it to heart. Father, help us to write it upon our minds, our hearts, our consciences, that we would be held captive to your word, Lord God that we would be bound by it, we would be rebuked by it, and we would be strengthened by it. Thank you, Lord God, that though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word endures forever and ever. Upon it we stand in the name of Jesus. Amen. We speak about the doctrines of grace. Some might call them the five points of Calvinism. We'll take that term right now, just for a second, and, and, and talk about it in the right context, but the doctrines of grace. Now, John Piper, I love what he had to say about this particular thing, the idea about Calvinism, about the, uh, the five points of Calvinism. He says, I don't want us to begin as Calvinists seeking to defend a system. I want us to begin as Bible-believing Christians who want to put the Bible above all systems of thought. You see, we run into danger when we pick our system and then seek out a way to defend it, as opposed to going to God's Word and reading it for what it says. Now, if you think about this idea, this whole idea, we, we do a little quick little back up into history. We go back to the early 1600s. Um, this was just following the time of John Calvin. Think about the, uh, the, the period in which we're in. Um, this is the early 1600s. You go back to 1517, you see uh, Luther uh, nailing the thesis on the door of the cathedral church there at Wittenberg. Uh, we think about following that, um, uh, John Calvin and all his work in Geneva, John Knox and his work uh, in Scotland, all this going on. In the early 1600s, there's a fellow by the name of Jacob Arminius. Uh, he studied in Geneva, actually under John Calvin's successor, uh, Theodore Beza. Um, Ar Arminius then began to teach in the early 1600s, around 1609 or so, at the University of Leiden. Leiden, excuse me, Leiden. Um, he rejected several of the teachings that he had been taught, and he drew up basically a five-point creed. 
a doctrine. This doctrine uh, document was signed by about 46 ministers there in that region. And a document uh, in 1610 came to be known as the Remonstrance. There's not going to be a test on this, but just want you to know kind of what we're dealing with here. And this, this document was declared heresy within the next decade at the Synod of Dort. And there, 102 members of this council got together and they responded to the five points that Arminius and the Remonstrants had put forward dealing with the nature of who we are, the nature of salvation, the nature of atonement, the nature of assurance, the nature of grace. This is what was being discussed. And they responded with five points. Basically, remember, creeds, confessions, catechisms, they always end up being responses to other things. For, for we teach very often in response to the errors that are being propagated around. And so the, uh, the Synod of Dort came up uh, with the, uh, the, the Council of Dort, came up with these doctrines, um, basically in response, these five points in response to the remonstrance. Now, this is not a summary of biblical doctrine. It's not a, a summary of even all of Reformed biblical doctrine. It is five points that, that press us to see our sin, to see our need of God's grace, to understand the complete grace of God which brings us to faith, that we trust in it as sufficient and it's complete. We look at the work of Christ, that He accomplished our salvation, not simply making it a possibility. He makes it real and actual. We see the Holy Spirit working to effectually make our salvation real not simply encouraging it or drawing us to it. And we trust that by God's strength, God's strength, He who is at work in us, as the choir sang, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. These are the things that we talk about, these five points. We remember them, by the way, through the beautiful flower tulip, right? We, we think about the T-U-L-I-P. T, total depravity. We think about the total inability. We're going to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about it again, the bad news, the black backdrop against which the light of the gospel shines beautifully. In essence, we learn this in this doctrine. We can't save ourselves. We can't do it. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, There is none who is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. It's Romans 3, 10 and 11. Paul is saying, none righteous. No one understands. No one, no one seeks God. The you in the second point is unconditional election. Unconditional election, that is our salvation, was an act of God's free grace before the world began. That is indeed that we did nothing to bring about our own salvation. Ephesians 1, just the the chapter prior to the one we just read, Ephesians chapter 1 says, In love God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In love, He made this to happen. It was His plan and it was His work. We're going to spend some time in weeks ahead looking at this. Limited atonement. Now, most accurately would say a particular atonement, but there's no such word as two-pip. We could think of other words, but limited atonement. Particular atonement is better, and that means uh, indeed that uh, the sacrifice of Christ's life was sufficient to save all men because He indeed was God there upon the cross, but it was effective to God's children. 
that was on the cross, Christ accomplished our atonement, not simply made it possible. Indeed, when Christ was upon the cross, and when He cried out, it is finished, the personal implication of that to me is, my sin was paid in full. It wasn't just a credit that I had to go and withdraw at a later point in time. We read about this in in, uh, Mark chapter 10. It says, The Son of Man, Jesus referring to Himself, uh, came not to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give His life as a ransom for many, not all, many. Many means many. Many does not mean all. Well, we'll talk about that when it comes up, that, that indeed He did pay the price for God's children. Irresistible grace, that would be the I in the whole thing. Our sinful resistance to God is wonderfully overcome by God's grace. That we don't seek after God. We just, we, we saw that in Romans chapter 3. We don't understand, we don't seek God, but this is overcome. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's that the Lord gives them, that the Lord draws them, the Lord brings them, the Lord makes it to happen. And the final, the P in the whole thing, is that perseverance of the the saints. Perseverance of the saints is all that are saved will win the the fight of faith. All those who are saved will endure to the end. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll hear many people looking at these things and agreeing in part with them. I find myself to be a four and a half point Calvinist. I'm a three point Calvinist. I'm a five point, I don't know, maybe a six. Somebody comes up with a six point, I guess, in there somewhere. But it's this idea that, that people pick and choose and they look at this. But I, I, I do contend as you look at these doctrines um, that, that when they were uh, penned and drawn from Scripture, uh, we find them to be consistent and to work on top of one another. They, they work with each other. Uh, they work united in each other. And I encourage you to, uh, to wrestle with them carefully and prayerfully. We talked about this in the Sunday school with the students. And it is this, that it is always important that we study God's Word, that we teach God's Word, that we preach God's Word, and we live God's Word for what it says, not for what we want it to say. Thank you. We... Uh, we would construct a whole different system if given the opportunity, I believe. But God's plan is perfect. And He knows the plans that He has for us, plans for welfare, not for evil, plans to give us hope and a future. That the plans that we would choose would by necessity be flawed, be imperfect, and fail. But God's plan will not. Now, a bit of advice in this whole thing. Don't find it wrong to be called a Calvinist if you find yourselves in agreement with this. It's good for the purpose of distinction. It's, uh, I think Calvin himself uh, would have rejected the notion of Calvinism. Matter of fact, when he was buried, he insisted that the grave be unmarked. And today, the grave that's thought to be his simply says J.C. on it. Jean Calvin. Um, he didn't want people to, to make pilgrimage to give... Uh, homage to to him, his reputation, I think he would reject this idea. But because understand this, and he would be the first to tell you this, particularly now from a state of glory. Uh, You're not saved by Calvin. Calvin died, but he did not die for you. 
Calvin did not inscribe indelibly your name upon the Lamb's Book of Life. I trust that Rick was not offended by what I said. (laughs) Calvin did not inscribe indelibly your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He simply went to God's Word. Understand this. He did not invent this doctrine any more than Sir Isaac Newton invented gravity. Sometimes you just got to get hit in the head to discover it, right? So here's what we do. We open God's Word, we open our eyes, we open our hearts, and we look for what the Bible actually said. So let's get on to this idea about total depravity. Total depravity. Look at this passage here. Let's look at some of the key phrases we find right here in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, Paul is writing to the saints at Ephesus. He's writing to people who have, have indeed been standing against the tide of the idol worship that was going on there in Ephesus. And he was talking about who they are as believers in Christ. But here he says it's vital that we understood where we were. He said we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Right there we see. It says we walked in these things following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is indeed describing uh, the spirit of this world or the devil himself the spirit that's now at work in all the sons of disobedience. Said we live by the passions of our flesh, that is, we selfishly pursued what we wanted for our own benefit and our own gain. No matter how noble those might look, we pursued them for sinful reasons. And we were by nature children of wrath, he says, like the rest of mankind. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, salvation came. And it says in the last verses there, not as a result of works, you see, because we can't save ourselves. We are unable to save ourselves. Not as a result of works. We have nothing about which we can boast apart from the finished work of Jesus Himself. Let me put it simple. Let me put it straightforward. A three-word phrase that summarizes the gospel. Three words to take with you here. Three words to help you remember the sum and substance of what we're talking about here, and that is that God saves sinners. That's the gospel. God saves sinners. We lose sight of that. We can get so distracted in the minutia of systems and and, and things that we lose sight of this idea that Paul himself said that the gospel is this, the truth of the matter is this, that God, Jesus Christ came in this world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. God saves sinners. If I am saved, that means I am, a, have been, and will continue to be a sinner until the day I stand in glory before God. But God does not see me as such. God sees me as a man saved because of the finished work of Jesus. Look at that. God saves sinners. That means God, all by Himself, without any help from us, God saves us. He saves us. He actually and truly saves us. He doesn't simply try to save. He doesn't make the possibility of salvation. But God actually and actively saves us. He takes a heart of stone and He makes it a heart of flesh. He sets our feet and the right path on the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. It's He who is at work in us to will and to do according to His good pleasure. All of these things speaks about the monergistic work of God. That is God working on His own for His own will, for His own glory, and by His power to bring our salvation. God saves sinners. Sinners, remember that. And that's where this doctrine really drives home an appreciation of the gospel. Sinners, helpless, hopeless, guilty, hell-deserving people 
who can do absolutely nothing. The gospel is not, friends. God gives everybody a chance if they'd only do their part. The most oft-quoted verse that's never been found in any pages of the Bible is this, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. It's not biblical. You know what the truth of the matter is? They left a little bit out of that. A summation of the gospel would be this, that God helps those who cannot help themselves. And you know what, even more so when we think about that aspect about being sinners, is God saves those, God helps those, God comes to those who don't want to help themselves. We don't want God. There's none who seeks after God, no, not one. Now, this doctrine of total depravity, there's some things this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we're all absolutely horrible, as bad and nasty outwardly and inwardly as we possibly could be. It's not saying that there's, there's no degrees of, of grace that are, are seen and sin that is manifested. We are not saying uh, that the person who lives a, a decent little life but, but never comes to salvation is outwardly as depraved as uh, Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler. That would be foolish to look at that and say, now, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own selfish way. This is the truth of Scripture. All of us. All of us are sinners. And somehow by God's grace, by God's grace, we're not as bad as we possibly could be outwardly. A restraining effect of God's common grace and some residual impact of the fact that we are indeed created in the image of God. Now, what about this? We think about the idea uh, that we, we look and we say, uh, we, 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 apart from, from God, we can do nothing good. Well, we ask the question then, do not un-Christians, non-Christians, don't they do good things? Don't they manifest benevolence? Don't they give to ease some homelessness and, and hunger and this sort of thing? And we say, we say yes. But we need to understand that apart from God, all we can do is sin. There's an important verse to consider there, and that's Romans 14.23. Romans 14.23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Who can help me? Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. It's that idea that what we do, if we do it for selfish motives, though it might outwardly be beneficial uh, around us, it is indeed sin because we do it for our own glory. We, we don't do it for the glory of God. Now think about this. We can be constrained by circumstances to do those things which again bear the residual marks of being created in the image of God. Let me, uh, let me give you uh, two quick examples. This is a hypothetical, a hypothetical about a doctor serving on a Navy vessel. This doctor serving on a Navy vessel, and while he's there, an officer on the Navy, on the ship, uh, he leads the crew in a mutiny, and he takes control of this vessel. Well, he then uses that ship to conduct piracy, and he goes and he robs other vessels, has great weapons at his disposal. The Navy indeed finds him, and they demand that he either surrender or they'll destroy the ship. He refuses to help, he refuses to surrender, and the Navy brings on all the necessary firepower they begin this fight. And during the battle, many of the men on the ship are wounded. Now, this man's a doctor. And this doctor works without rest or food. 
And he risked his life over and over and over again to give his men aid in the midst of this struggle. Well, we look at that situation and we need to know that when the Navy finally captures the ship, they will hang the captain and his men for piracy, for mutiny, for doing all these sorts of things. And the heroic good which he did in risking his life, well, the judge who sentences him might admire his courage, but he is still a traitor. He has still done wrong against his government and he will still be put to death. None of his good that he did in the midst of that will count for anything. The same principle applies to us as we seek to do good in a sinful life because we will do it for the wrong reasons. We find ourselves constrained by society. We find ourselves constrained by selfish motives and, and even by, uh, by those around us. A, a more close-at-home example was had the, uh, the odd experience of, of visiting uh, down in Atmore, an Atmore and Holman prison and there you find death row. Men who have been placed there, pending appeal, they have no hope. A day rapidly approaching when, when they will pay with their lives for their crime. In the situation, you'll, you'll find where they've got maybe 23 hours that they can, can sit in a, in, a, in a cell, just staring at the walls let out in a little fence yard for maybe an hour a day to walk around in circles and brought right back in. And you look at that and you say, well, what is that accomplishing? Well, that person's not murdering anymore. That person's not stealing anymore. That person is not committing crimes anymore. What, what has happened is that that person has been constrained. Because here's, here's the truth. The efforts of man can cage sin, but it cannot eradicate it. The efforts of man can, can restrain the outward expression of sin, but it cannot cure the heart and it cannot eradicate the roots of sin which are found in us, in our hearts. It's out of our heart that sin comes. We can, we can do things that make us look decent, but apart from God's work, all that we do is like worthless, filthy rags. Some basic points of, of this doctrine of total depravity. Man does not seek God for who he is. We do not seek God for who He is. We seek God for who we want Him to be. We construct an idol. That idol might in so many ways resemble the God of Scripture, but we're going to customize it to what we want rather than who He truly is. Well, it's only when we submit to the true and the living God uh, that we find that rooted out of our hearts. We understand that we only sin. We looked at that, that what is not done in faith uh, is sin. And we need to understand that we do not have the ability to love or to follow God. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, it says, You who are dead in your trespasses and sin, what can a dead man do? Can a dead man choose to be alive? Think about Lazarus. Lazarus in John chapter 11, when Jesus cried out, Lazarus, if you're not doing anything better and if this is a convenient time, hate to bother you, looks like you're getting good rest there, but if it would not be too much trouble, I surely would appreciate it if you would come out of that grave. Make flippant about it, but we do act that way as if if God has to ask permission to impact our lives in an eternally beneficial way. It was our Savior who said, Lazarus, come forth. And we then look and say, well, did Lazarus not participate? Did he not get on his feet and walk out of the grave? Yes, he did. But guess what? It was after he was made alive. He... He came forward after He was raised. All that we do is a response 
It is God who has made us alive. He receives the glory. Jesus told Nicodemus. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, remember Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless somebody is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I was speaking of children and infants earlier, and we may think they have a lot of say when they're, they're born, but you know they don't. I remember when Carol, we stared at Carol the whole due date when Thomas was scheduled to be born. We just sat there all day and stared at her belly. And it didn't happen. And we kept saying, oh, he's got a mind of his own. He's on his own schedule. But the truth of the matter is, we don't have the choice in being born. It's that which happened to us. And praise God it did. In the same way, Jesus deliberately picks this example which Nicodemus was really wrestling with. How can I enter into my mother's womb again to be born again? I don't understand, Jesus. He said, listen. And he goes on to explain that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We see this idea that we are born again by Jesus Christ. So this idea that we are utterly incapable of borning ourselves. We cannot give birth on our own. The last thing that we see about a total depravity, this idea is that we totally deserve eternal punishment. Our sins mean that we deserve God's wrath. The curse that was Christ on the cross that we looked at on Holy Week, we need to understand that that was due to me. I owed that debt, but Christ paid it. Now, some would argue. John, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we read this verse in verse 12. It says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God. So we look at that particular verse and say, they believed and He gave them a right, right? And so we look at that. How do we, we deal with that? Well, how do we receive it? How can we receive it? Do we have a desire to receive it apart from God? Verse 13 answers that. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13 says, Those children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We can selectively quote Scripture and make points. We need to comprehensively, comprehensively examine the context of Scripture and say, what indeed is God saying? We don't need to seek to defend a system. We need to seek to understand God's communication to us. So there's implications of this, and this is where we wrap up this morning. Implications of this. This is not simply a theological point that we make and say, oh good, I've got something to argue with my friends tomorrow at work. That's not what God's Word is for. It is not, it's not a weapon to be wielded just to hurt somebody and prove your point. It is indeed a sword to be wielded, a scalpel in the hands of, of our Heavenly Father to be used to, to do divine surgery. Implications of this. If we think of ourselves as basically good, if we look at God's Word and we say walking away from it saying, you know what, I'm basically good, then we're going to have a, a, a defective view of the goodness of God. If we look at ourselves and say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm not really that bad well, then we're not going to appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus. If we look at our sin and say it's not that great, then our view of the love of God will be deficient. The more we understand our sin, the greater will we appreciate the love of God. We look at the life of the Apostle Paul. He began in his description of himself to be the least of the apostles, a humble man, 
the least of the apostles, so number 13 of 13, to the least of the saints, okay, among all the Christians, sure, understand, I'm, I'm way down there, to his final assessment and some of his last words to Timothy said, you need to understand that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of which I'm the worst. Paul, the worst of sinners. As we come to understand our sin more and more, we will know the love of God more and more. It has implications on our relationship with God to understand our sin and our depravity. It has implications outside the walls of our own life, our own house, our own church. Do you think government and our policy making and all these sorts of things would not be radically different if we come at it with the approach of understanding that checks and balances are necessary because of the depravity of men? Our founding fathers were wise in doing so. They addressed it as such. Child raising, do we raise our children different when we understand that our children are not born as these innocent little, uh, little sweet little things that would never think about doing anything good? Or are they murderers who just don't have the strength and the skill to accomplish what they want to do right in that moment? We would laugh all the time in seminary saying, oh, look at that, just another little viper in a diaper. We, we laugh, but do you understand that as we, as we consider how we raise our children, that we raise them as sinners who need the grace of God? Do, do you think it might have implications in our business and the way that we deal with people or the way that we enforce laws through our police officers and others? This, this has far-reaching implications. Scripture teaches us that man is sinful and man needs a Savior. Evangelism, the last thing we touch on, the last thing that we leave here this morning is that we need to understand that when we approach it, the understanding of the depravity of man and the power and the sovereignty of God in this matter, then we can go forward with evangelism with power. We can proclaim the gospel with strength. You see, if we deny this doctrine, then essentially what we're doing is we're kind of like, it's kind of like God standing on a bridge and shouting down to a person watching them bobbing up and down in the river, about to be swept away in the current, saying, hey, i got good news for you. If you can just get to the shore, I'll come down there and dry you off. Now come on, get yourself out of there. He can't get out of there. John Gerstner, the teacher of R.C. Sproul, Gerstner said, you need to understand that man is not simply drowning and just needs to reach out to the the lifesaver that's been thrown to him. No, man's not just drowning. He said, man is dead and at the bottom of Davy Jones's locker. We're incapable of saving ourselves. The gospel call goes forth with power and we go forth and proclaim that gospel knowing that God is able and does save sinners. It gives us also this motive for prayer when it comes to it. If it's of God, then we plead before the throne of grace. We plead day after day after day for the salvation of those whom we love, those around us. Lord, make me to be a servant. Make me to be an evangelist. Make me to be one who can proclaim the gospel with power and strength, Lord, for Your glory that others would be saved. Because, Lord God, if You don't work, this doesn't happen. And if this doesn't happen, then we get what we deserve. Lord, would You do this? We plead before God's throne of grace and we plead effectively because our Savior is the one who's gone before us and our Savior is the one that has accomplished salvation and says what you ask in my name, I will answer and will give you. You see, this doctrine, you say, wow, this is oppressive. This beats me down. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It gives us that understanding that God loved me that much. 
He loved me that much that in my sinfulness, He washed me. He brought me to life and He has saved me. And indeed, He will do that for all the descendants, more numerous than the stars of the sky, all of His children, because His grace is enough. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, thank You for this, Your Word. And we pray, Almighty God, that we would go forward, Lord, recognizing that we have no reason to be haughty, but every reason to be humble and to rejoice in knowing that You have saved us. You have saved us by Your grace that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, may we rejoice in that truth and may we proclaim it with boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.